And I'm excited to be with you this evening as we continue through the series on David's life. So David, a man after God's own heart. And that's what we're looking at uh, today. And so really what we come to is David is confronted with, is he going to trust in God's timing for his life and for the justice that is needed? Or is he going to take it into his own hands? And I think that's a question that all of us wrestle with. If we stop and evaluate our own life, we all wrestle with this idea of wanting things to happen in our timing. Not waiting on the Lord's timing, but we think we know best. And this couldn't be more clear for our family about a year and a half ago. uh, We moved to London. And it was during this process of preparing to move, uh, a family of six across an ocean, we had a lot of things lined up that needed to happen by certain dates. And then COVID hit. And that obviously messed up everybody's plan, including our plan to move. And so things began to be delayed. We had to get passports for some of our kids that we didn't have yet, but yet these government offices are closed. Uh, So we had to wait, and then we finally got them. And then we had to get our uh, visa appointment. We had to go have a face-to-face meeting so we can get our visa to enter the country. And that got delayed. Uh, We had to apply for kids' schools, and we missed the deadline. We had a house that we had to be out of yet nowhere to go. (laughs) We had to be out of our house at the end of August, and um, we had about a month of wandering around, staying with friends and family. So it was not how we would have drawn it up. It was not according to our plan. And we desperately, at times, tried to manipulate as much as we could and, and make things happen, but we realized it's really in the Lord's timing. And as we look back, we don't know all that God was doing during that in our lives, but we can, we noticed a couple things of how we provided Um, particularly with the kids' schools. Like, we got into schools that we feel are a very good fit for our children, and they probably wouldn't have been available if we came on time. So hindsight, you can kind of see how God was preparing some of those things, but sometimes we don't see that. And so I think we can all relate on different various levels of wanting things to happen in our time, and our time usually means quick, right? We want this to happen quickly. Um, You know, one of my favorite purchases that we made when we first got to London was our Nespresso maker. It is instant caffeine in the morning. You put the pot in, push it down, add a little water. It's just delightful. It's fast. It's easy. It's nice to wake up to, but it's quick, and that's how I like it. Um, think about the way that we operate. If, if there's a, an answer to a question we don't know, if I'm helping my kids with a question I don't know on their homework, or if you're with a friend and you're trying to remember the actor's name or the actress's name, what do you do? Pull out your phone. You Google it, and you get the answer, right? It's quick, and we love that because it's at our fingertips, and we can get it when we want it. If you just think about some of the marketing campaigns, uh, some of the advertisements that you see on TV, uh, one that I grew up with was one with, uh, from Burger King, and their slogan is, your way, right away, at Burger King now. Uh, think about that for a minute. Your, it's, we wanted, it's, it's about you. It's your way, and not just whenever, but right away, And then emphasis at the end, now. Um, So I think we're almost indoctrinated with that message in the culture that we're in. There's also, uh, there was a successful campaign with uh, Snickers, the candy bar in the U.S. I don't know if this one made it across or not, but it was hungry? Why wait? Eat a Snickers, right? That's that's their message. Why wait? Instant gratification. Um, Now these are some kind of lighthearted examples, but if you think about real-life circumstances, this can be painful. When God's timing and our timing don't match up, that distance in between there causes some pain in our own hearts as we try to figure out what's going on. Um, Maybe this for you is a relationship. You desire to be in a relationship, and you're not. 
Or maybe you desire to be married and you're not. Your timeline has not worked out according to God's timeline. Maybe it's getting a job. Maybe you finished up uni, you're looking for a job. Or maybe you're in a job, but it's not the right job. You're not being, you're not being able to utilize your gifts the way you think you can. And so you're waiting on God's timing. Or maybe it's about a promotion. So you've been passed over for a promotion, but then, you know, you're waiting. You should have had that promotion by now within your job. Or maybe you're married and you want to have children. So you want to, uh, you know, start a family. You have a plan of what that should look like. And you can't get pregnant. And that's painful. My wife and I actually experienced that. We got painful, or we got pregnant quickly, which was painful. Um, but we ended up having a miscarriage uh, with our first child, and there was a, a period of time where we didn't know if we'd be able to have children, and it was a painful period for us to walk through. And so we all experience this idea of not getting what we want when we want it, and our timeline being off from God's timeline. And so David's confronted with this. Um, David's going to be tested with his restraint, and we're going to see how he responds to this. If you remember last week, which was chapter 24, David was in the back of a cave hiding from Saul, who's trying to take his life. Saul comes into the cave, and David's with some men back there. They're hiding, and they kind of begin to whisper, hey, this is the opportunity. God's delivering him into your hands. You can now be king. Take his life. And what does David do? He says, no, I'm going to wait on the Lord's timing. This is the Lord's anointed. God has put him in this position, and he will remove him from that position when it's time. And he has patience and restraint, and he trusts the Lord's timing. So we come to this in chapter 25, and we ask, how is he going to respond this time? What's he going to do? So let's look into the text a little bit. Um, Chapter 25 begins with the news that Samuel has died. And it's actually a very quick portion. It's half of a verse, and you can almost read over it without noticing, but he's the guy that, you know, we've named these books after. He's a major influential figure. He was actually the spiritual leader of um, Israel. Saul had failed in that role, and so Samuel was in that role. He was the one who anointed David and said, you were going to be king, and now he's gone. And so this was a big event in the life of Israel. It says that all of Israel gathered to mourn, but also in the life of David, this was his mentor. This was his spiritual father, so to speak. And maybe that's why we find David in the wilderness. He says that he goes to Paran, maybe to process as well as fleeing from Saul. There's just a lot going on with David in this moment. And so God is going to do something in David's life to prepare him to be that righteous king uh, that he will one day be. So today we're going to look at uh, two different characters that are going to be introduced. We're going to look at Nabal and what is his response to David, to God's anointed. That's point one. Point two will be we'll look at Abigail and what is her response to God's anointed. And then lastly, we'll look forward and see how this chapter points forward to Christ, ultimately. Where do we see Christ in this? So let's look at Nabal. Um, It's interesting, in this passage, Saul isn't mentioned. Um, Abigail kind of briefly alludes to the fact that he's being pursued, but Saul is nowhere present in the passage. And so we're supposed to see Nabal as a type of Saul. He's arrogant. He's uh, proud. And he's foolish. And so we see that very clearly depicted in the text about Nabal's life. And then it's contrasted with Abigail, who is beautiful and wise, and we'll get to her in a minute. So the first thing we learn about Nabal is the way that he's introduced is that we actually aren't given his name first. What we're given is a description of his possessions. So in verse 2 it says, he was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. 
And at first reading, to me, it's like, okay, he owns a lot of animals. Good for him. But in that setting, he would have been a multimillionaire. He was a successful businessman who was well-off, well-known in his community. And he's proceeded with his riches. That's how he's introduced, because that's all he has. Possessions are everything to him. And then we see, we learn later on in verse 25 that Nabal actually means fool. That's what his name means. And it made me stop and think, what parent in their right mind would name their child fool? I mean, they're going to set him up for just a life of disaster, right? Um, But through reading some commentaries there, it's actually, they're probably distorting his name, or it was a nickname given to him in light of his character. But he is known as Nabal the Fool. He's also described in verse 3, he's harsh, he's badly behaved. I'm using the ESV translation, so it might be a little different than the NIV that you're reading from, if, if you notice some, some varying in words. Um, verse 17, it says that one of his servants, the, one of those that was closest to him, describes him like this. He is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. He's wicked. He won't listen. And then verse 25, his own wife refers to him as a worthless fellow. So that's his reputation. Not only is he foolish in the way he's described in the text, but he's also foolish in how he acts. And so, The story continues. David hears that Nabal is shearing his sheep. And now that was a big event. So think like harvest time. This is a time of festivity and great wealth, feasting, and they're shearing the sheep. David hears. And David has actually helped Nabal out while his shepherds and sheep are in the wilderness. He's protected them in some way. He's provided some sort of uh, protection for for this uh, sheep and for the shepherd. And so David says, I'm going to send 10 men to Nabal and just ask for some provisions out of his abundance. And so how does that go? Well, he sends them, and this is the way David approaches Nabal. Very humbly, in verse 8, it says, Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. He's showing humility. He's putting himself below Nabal. And in the ancient Near East, hospitality would have been expected it would have been very likely that Nabal should have said, out of my abundance, of course. You did me right in the wilderness, and now I'm going to bless you. But what is Nabal's response? Nabal is harsh. He says no, but he doesn't just say no. David maybe would have taken a no, a gentle no, but it's the way he does it. This is Nabal's response. It's in verse 10. He says, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? He's belittling David at this point. And then he goes on, he says, you're just a runaway servant. You're disobedient. You've left your master. You're a runaway servant. And he says, this is my bread, my water, my meat. And Nabal was extremely disrespectful and harsh. And the reason why that's a big deal is because, remember, David is God's anointed. In rejecting David, he's rejecting God. And so David, we'll read about his response here in a second. But the question enters your mind. So did he just not know who David was? That's a good question. Who's David? Who's, maybe he just doesn't know. But think about who David is. He has killed Goliath, and songs have been sung about him all over Israel. And not only that, he has been anointed to be the future king. Abigail, Nabal's wife, knows who David is, and that becomes clear as he, she begins to tell him that he will be the future king. And so it's not that he doesn't know who David is. He's rejecting David at this point because he's a fool. 
How else do we see his foolishness? Uh, well, at the very end, when Abigail comes back to Nabal, how do we find Nabal? He's drunk out of his mind. He's a fool. Enjoying his possessions uh, to a fault. And so we see that he's a, he's a spiritual, moral, and social disaster. That's who he is. He's rejected God's anointed. So what can we learn? Just basic principles of being a fool or foolishness from Nabal's life. What can we learn from his example? What does the Bible define as foolishness from his life? One, it's living for possessions. So the question we have to ask is, have possessions or materialistic things taken an unhealthy priority in my own life? We see that Nabal's quick to criticize. So we have to ask the question, am I quick to criticize? Do I find fault in others quickly? And maybe not to their face, criticize them, but behind their backs in gossip. A lack of gratitude. Nabal was not thankful for what he had or how God had provided for him. He had a lack of gratitude. Do I have a thankful heart? Not being generous. It would have been very easy for Nabal to be a blessing, but yet he had a tight grip on his possessions. Is that us? Is that you? Is that me? He wasn't listening. To not listen is to be a fool. Are we quick to listen and slow to speak? And then drunkenness. Are you tempted to escape reality through drunkenness? So we see that in Nabal's life. Well, how does David respond to this? What will David do? Now, this is the man after God's own heart. How will he respond to this situation? Well, the, the words that David speaks is, Every man, strap on your sword. I don't think we need to read between the lines there to understand David's intent, right? He's going after Nabal. And he's going to seek justice in his timing, and it's now. And so one question is, how could this be the man after God's own heart? He has these murderous thoughts, and he's going to enact justice on his own accord. And as we'll see in a little bit, he will actually repent from this. And that's why he's a man after God's own heart. He listens to instruction. And that will come through um, Abigail. But in case we're wondering what David's intentions are in verse 21 and 22, he spells it out. He says, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by mourning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So David feels wronged, and he was. And he's going to take matters into his own hands. And then enters Abigail. So point two, how does Abigail respond to God's anointed? Well, I think it's true that God uses people to accomplish his purposes, right? We see that. We see God sending people. Maybe in your own life, how have you seen God send someone to you to help correct you in a time of need or encourage you when you needed to be encouraged? Well, that's exactly what he does here with David. If we think about where David's at, the death of Samuel, discouragement, being hunted down for his life in the wilderness, and now he's going to get encouragement. Correction first, but then encouragement and reminder of God's promises for his life. So let's look at Abigail. She's, like we said earlier, she's the exact opposite of Nabal. Um, and she's described as being discerning or intelligent and beautiful. She couldn't be more uh, the opposite, right? And so Abigail, uh, we see this in several different places. One is that the servant that you know, hears about David's plan to come and basically murder the household. The servant hears about this, and who does he go to? He doesn't go to Nabal. Why? Because Nabal won't listen. He goes to Abigail. Abigail must have a reputation of the one that will actually reason with you and listen. 
and the one who will act quickly. And that's what she does. In verse 18, she acts quickly and decisively and puts a plan into motion. So she uses her resources and her intellect and her abilities and her managerial skills to make something happen here. She organizes a feast to be distributed to David, and you could read through the list of all the things there. I mean, 200 loaves of, of bread, uh, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five seahs, which is about 60 pounds of grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs. She put them on donkeys and sends them ahead. She's going to make right what Nabal made wrong. So what does she not do? What can we learn from her in what she doesn't do? How does she not approach David? Well, one, she doesn't try to use her beauty as a tool to manipulate. She doesn't try to flirt with David and try to woo him, so to speak, into doing the right thing. No, she comes with wisdom and with God's Word. She also doesn't come to emotionally manipulate. She doesn't just fall down and start crying at his feet and beg and plead for mercy, but she comes with truth and speaks to David. Now think about this. This would take a lot of courage. David is coming with 400 men with swords, and she knows it, and she goes to confront him. That is boldness and courage, to be able to go and do that. And I think it's interesting, there's a misunderstanding in our culture today that the Bible degrades women. And I think this passage, as well as many, many others, are actually lifting up women and showing she's the hero of the story. <laughs> she's the one who's doing the right thing, and she's the one who's going to save her household as she has the proper response to God's anointed. So how does she approach David with utmost respect? We see this in verse 24. She humbly, uh, she, she, she humbles herself and falls at David's feet. She refers to him as Lord and herself as servant. What else does she do? She takes responsibility for Nabal's foolishness. She says, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. She's willing to take responsibility. She's thoughtful in her speech. She reasons with him as if he's already agreed. I don't know if you picked up on that. In verse 26, she assumes that David will restrain himself. In verse 26 says, Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. David hasn't responded yet. He hasn't said he's going to do this. She's wise in the way she speaks with him. She asks for forgiveness. Verse 28. She knows and affirms God's plan to establish David and his household as king of Israel. And so she speaks this truth back into David, and it must have been encouraging for David, as I mentioned just a little bit earlier, that this is probably what he needed to hear, that God has a plan for you, and he's going to establish you in your home in Israel. Um, and, so, and then lastly, she shows discernment when she returns to meet with Nabal and kind of relay the message of what's happened. She shows up, her husband's drunk out of his mind, and so she says, I'm going to wait till morning. And so she uses wisdom once again. She has the right timing for the conversation. So, how does she respond? She entrusts herself to the anointed one. She has a proper fear of God's anointed one. She comes with humility and reverence and respect. So, how does David respond to Abigail? What's his response to her? Uh, one, he repents. He recognizes that Abigail is God's provision and what he needs in that moment. He humbles himself. He sees the wrong in his plan, and he repents from it. And so how could he be a man after God's own heart? It's right here. He turns from it. He, re he realizes the folly of his thinking, and he turns from it. 
In verse uh, 32 and 33, this is David's response. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. So what is God doing in his life? What is God doing in David's life in this chapter? Well, God is using this to prepare David to be the righteous king that Israel needs. And so, if you remember last chapter, chapter 24, David does the right thing. He he waits on God's timing. He doesn't take Saul's life. Well, we know in chapter 26, if you look ahead, he's going to have another opportunity to take Saul's life. And he doesn't. Could it be that God is using chapter 25 right here to teach him the lesson to rely on God's timing for justice? I mean, just because he spared Saul's life, Saul's life once doesn't guarantee he'll do it again. God teaches him through this uh, to be patient and to wait. And God does that in our lives too, right? God uses those difficult trials and those situations in our own lives to prepare us for what he's going to do through us in the future. And I mentioned uh, this at the beginning, that my wife and I, Mandy, we had a, a miscarriage with our first uh, pregnancy. And that was early on in our marriage, and this was one of the most difficult things that we had ever been through, and still, is, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging thing. Um, the pain that you feel when things don't line up the way you think they should. And then there was about a year plus that we didn't know if we could ever have kids. So we were just in this waiting period of like, God, you know, we had this plan to start a family. When will it happen? So what was God doing in that in our lives? Well, one, we really saw the church come around us, the church that we're part of, God's community, God's people. And it really gave us the conviction and ingrained in us the conviction that we need God's people. Wherever we go in our life, we're going to be connected to a community who's teaching us and preparing us. Um, I think also we've met a lot of people who have experienced the same thing, and we've been able to empathize with them, and we've been able to share with them some of the things that we were taught during that. So God had used that in our own life to equip us to better minister to others. So what is God doing through your challenging circumstances? How might he be preparing you for good works in the future? Well, the story ends, as we know, um, justice is served, but not at David's hand, at God's hand. Abigail returns to tell Nabal that David is after you, and uh, I've, I've smoothed things over, and Nabal has a heart attack. And then 10 days later, it says God strikes him dead. So justice is served, but not on his own timing. And the principle there is that God, it was easy for God. Justice is not a hard thing for God. And so as we experience injustices in our own lives, in our own world, and we're waiting for that to come, and and God wants to use you to bring justice, ultimately God will make things right. And we have that promise that one day he will return, set up heaven on earth, and make all the wrongs right And then we see David responds to Abigail by marrying her. And this is an interesting little little bit here. Um, You know, it's almost like, oh, fairy tale ending. Now David marries Abigail, and they ride off into the sunset. But then as you continue to read, it's like, oh, wait, he has another wife. Oh, and then there's another wife. So what's going on here with polygamy in the Bible? Is that, you know, why is that here? Why is that in the text? And I had to look into that myself because I was like, man after God's own heart, what's happening here? Well, I think the basic principle that's helpful here is that this is descriptive and not prescriptive. So scripture here is describing the events as they happened in David's life. They're not prescribing how we should then follow in his example. So they're describing the events, not 
prescribing for us the way that we should um, act. And we know in Genesis 2, right, that God established marriage between one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. And he could have created multiple wives, but he didn't. And then we look at all the examples of polygamy and having concubines in the Bible, and it usually doesn't end well. It's not like a blessing in their life. God will use it. He uses the sinfulness of man in a way, like the the bad choices. God can use that towards good, but he's not prescribing that for our lives. Um, One commentator that I read was helpful. He said that the way this chapter ends actually carry uh, ominous overtones of what's coming with David and Bathsheba in the future, a moral failure that's coming. And then in the New Testament, as the New Testament talks about Old Testament saints, they're oftentimes, what they're pointing to is the faith of those saints, Abraham's faith, not the fact that he had, no, he is not telling you to follow his every example, but look at the faith that he had. And so we see that in scripture. So a little side note there. I thought I'd address it because it was right there in front of us. Um, so lastly, how does all this point forward to God's anointed? How does this point forward to Jesus? Where do we see that? Well, we know Israel is waiting for the Messiah, the Savior that is to come and make all things right. And we see even here that it's not David. He makes a rash decision. He repents from it, but we know that it's not him. So we're still waiting for that Messiah that's to come. And David, who wants to take things into his own hands, what we're going to see is that the Messiah who comes does not. In fact, Jesus comes, and he comes to serve not only us, but he is obedient to his Father's plan perfectly. All of his life, he's obedient to the Father's plan. He does not try to take things into his own hands, but he follows the Lord's timing. And I was thinking through this, and the instance that popped into my mind was, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before Jesus is to be crucified, and he's in the garden praying. He's praying to the Father, and he says, Father, if there's any other way, could could we do this another way? This cup of wrath that's before me, this judgment that's coming, can we do this another way? And God says, no. And what does Jesus say? "Not, Not my will, but yours be done. And he follows obediently to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he does it for you and me, that we can be forgiven that we can actually become the righteousness of God and enter into a relationship with him. So Jesus points forward to Jesus who will be the one who waits on God's timing. Who are we in the story? When I first read this story, I thought I identified most with either David or Abigail, right? But I think what we're, one thing we're supposed to see is that we are actually all Nabals. That is who we are, that we are all foolish. What do I mean by that? The one who rejects God's anointed is foolish. And we've all done that. The scripture is very clear that not one of us is righteous on our own. Not one of us seeks for God. This is Romans 3.10. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Very repetitive, right? He's making a point. It's everyone. It's all of us. And it's interesting. He actually uses the same word there. Together they have become worthless. Nabal was described by Abigail as a worthless man. We are Nabals. We have rejected God's anointed, but yet that didn't stop the anointed, capital A, from coming to die for us so that we could actually enter into relationship 
with him. So we're not left as little navels, so to speak, but now through God's grace and through the power of his Holy Spirit, we can live out and become more like Abigail. We can live a life of wisdom in the fear of the Lord. We can be a blessing to others and we can speak encouragement into others' lives. And so let me close in prayer and just pray that we would respond as Abigail's and not as Nabal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this example in Scripture. Thank you that you have given us your word for instruction. You show us what it is to be a fool, and you show us what it is to be wise. You show us what the proper response to your anointed is. The proper response to Jesus is to come to him and to come empty-handed, to come and surrender in a proper fear of the Lord. And so, God, we thank you that we can have the righteousness of God through Christ. God, help us to evaluate in our own lives where are the areas that we're living foolishly so that we can glorify you, that we can live for you, honor you, and God, show us how we can be a blessing to others and speak encouragement to others. In Christ's name, amen.